millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome back to the Phillies Club. It's been so long. I mean, at least a couple of months. I've missed you, all of you, so much. My name is Patrick Beja. And on this show, what we do is that we get people from different parts of the world and try to get the news from those parts of the world, but also get their views on what's happening in our part of the world. Uh, you know, more or less, usually it's uh, it's been, well, COVID is everywhere, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But also we'll talk about other things, because other things have been happening, including, for those who don't know, I now have two children. And uh, that is more difficult than having one child. Uh, I've been told uh, that that would be the case. I was warned, and uh, I can confirm it is indeed more difficult. It's funny because... Uh, let me introduce the, the, the guests first. Let, let's try and be polite. Uh, first of all, ladies first, Hannah is back from Malaysia. How are you doing, Hannah? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, here in sunny Kuala Lumpur this afternoon. And uh, we talk about COVID all the time, uh, and obviously mm. it's a big topic of our conversation, especially for you since you work in the tourism industry. So I guess <laughs> we're going to have things to discuss there. Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's not a great industry to be in still. <laughs> <laughs> But you may, you know, we're looking towards uh, the, the, the end of the apocalypse, hopefully. and Or maybe not in Malaysia. I'll be interested to know how things are going on that, uh, you know, with vaccination and all of that. Because <laughs> sure. we, we, I think there's a, a mood of like, okay, we have vaccines now in the West. And we're like, yay, we're done. Good. Excellent job, everyone. And it seems like it might not quite be that simple um, long term. But uh, we'll see. We'll talk about that. Yes. Also, Bart is here from um, the, the greater British Isles land of <laughs> affiliated with Britain in some form, but not too much, because if you say that, you might get in trouble from where you're from. How's it going, Bart? It is going well. And uh, Patrick, Republic of Ireland, how's that? that that's a nice, easy one. Mm. But, you know, I want to uh, get it from the from the start that, uh, you know, what's happening in Ireland now is, you know, has a lot to do with what's happening across the, well, the, the, the border. I was going to say the channel, the sea. Well, no, it's across the border. border. That's the yeah, problem. Exactly. If, there was a sea, if there was a sea, we'd have much less trouble. <laughs> it would be much easier. It would. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I'm not sure what to start with. Like, do we start with COVID and get it out of the way? Or do we start with... Brexit, like how's it? How do you say it? Like fall over, <laughs> fall down consequences, or do we start with I don't know what what you just woke up, Bart? So maybe we'll go to Hannah first and uh, let you. <laughs> you didn't just let wake up, my... but you just. I, I, I have just said a bad. You're right because I, I literally, you know, my 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 morning tasks were make tea, listen to nine o'clock news to make sure nothing had exploded. Talk to Patrick. <laughs> Uh, well, all right. So we'll let you uh, go over in your head uh, the fact that nothing exploded, apparently. Well, maybe that's a bit too broad. Not everything exploded. Um, is Explosion that... is still in progress, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so go, uh, the, the explosion is still happening. And let's talk about uh, what's happening in Malaysia. And if you, if you can, if you have a view of, you know, the, the neighboring region, um, how, <laughs> how are things, Hannah, uh, over there? But you know what, like, 
not great. <laughs> so, you know, when we last you, talked, what, yeah, you, you, know, you had me. Guys. You had me hope for just a second. You're like, you know what? It's not too bad. And yeah, no, that's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, silly me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when we spoke last year, I think we spoke last year. Um, mm -hmm. And at that time, like Southeast Asia was doing pretty well. Our cases were quite under control. It's feeling, you know, a little bit smug almost. Ha ha ha! Look at Europe. Look at mm. America. Look at those hundreds and thousands of cases they've got. Um, and then, of course, you know, we had a, the end of the year here and then pretty much across the region in Southeast Asia, no matter what country it was. So some countries like uh, Vietnam had had very few cases. Laos, I think up till uh, maybe March had had less than 50 cases, like five zero cases in the whole pandemic that has zero deaths, 50 mm. cases. And across the board the numbers have risen in all of these countries and it's 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 kind of hard to say why i think some of it is down to variants some of it is down to the locals just getting a bit complacent i think you know mm. if you've been in a country for so long with such low and kind of incidence of covid then you're probably not taking all the social distancing measures and everything else quite so seriously. So then when a case does get in and it starts to be transmitted, then it suddenly becomes a lot more serious than in countries that, you know, were perhaps like maintaining more mask wearing, more social distancing kind of protocols. That's what I've um, heard. So yeah. And, and what, to be honest, I was following this because, I mean, I, it got to my uh, attention because uh, it seems Taiwan has been hit as well. And there's a lot of uh, manufacturing of, well, almost all of it, of CPUs and chips over there. And the world is freaking out now because they're like, oh, my God, if that's if that affects uh, chip manufacturing even more than, you know, there's so much uh, uh, issues with with uh, uh, orders not being fulfilled, everyone was freaking out. But you, yeah, you're and that's the explanation people were giving. But the, so the vaccines have not started at all yeah i mean that's the other thing so yeah i think taiwan is surprisingly i mean and i, I don't follow taiwan so closely but mm. yeah has been surprisingly slow but in general southeast asia for the vaccination rollout has been super slow um i mean you have got countries you know indonesia has got almost 200 million people so they're not countries that can be like very easily rolled out. Indonesia is made up of thousands of islands as well. So logistically, it's pretty tough too. But, you know, if you look across the I board... I guess it's also um, natural social distancing as well, uh, to an extent. Yeah, but, mm. yeah in a way. Um, but, you know, like right now, I, I just found some stats. That the, the country that's the most advanced, and you would kind of expect this in Southeast Asia, is Singapore. So Singapore has got to about 34% uh vaccination but their population is only about six million people so they've got a pretty easy deal right it's just mm. distributing it throughout a city um whereas you've got countries like vietnam and they are at 0.09 percent and not even at wow. 0.1 percent yet of their population and a lot of this is uh i mean what the governments here at least blame this on is western nations like you like Europe, like the US hoarding, hoarding the all vaccines, of these vaccines. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And kind of over-ordering. Um, and then, of course, AstraZeneca, we had that whole Europe not letting them export either. So I think that also contributed to shortages here in yeah, Southeast which I Asia. Think, I, I think looking at it from here, I think everyone would admit that that's the case, um, especially with now the concern that if we don't vaccinate everyone, variants are going to keep happening because mutations keep happening uh, in, you know, places that haven't been uh, where the, the the pandemic hasn't subsided yet. So I think everyone's aware. What I'm trying to say is we know we're holding it and, and yeah, I think it's fair. <laughs> yes, it's fair to say, yeah. It's not like yeah. some kind of, of uh, uh, how do you call it, like... Uh, uh, Ah, I, I, propaganda that the, those countries are are spinning. I think it's a fair thing thing to say, at least to this point. Yeah, I think so. So that's why I'm saying, you know, last year we were feeling pretty smug, looking at what a mess Europe mm. and the US are, and now it's almost the opposite way around. You know, Southeast Asia is okay. It's still not at crazy COVID levels like Europe. So I I think that the highest kind of daily case rate, I think Indonesia had about thirteen thousand cases. Um, a couple of days ago, they're going through a new surge there. Um, 
but we have a huge shortage of vaccines and so just rolling it out itself is you know you're probably looking at maybe the end of this year for some countries for some of the poorer countries or the bigger countries could easily be midway through next year and now I'm looking at all these pictures of Europeans going on holiday and <laughs> I don't know seeing even you know watching the Euros and I'm not a big football fan but my husband's made me watch some of the highlights on YouTube um, <laughs> Seeing like the full stadiums, that's crazy. I think sitting here in Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> we're going through quite a strict lockdown again. Mm. You're seeing some of the countries where they're allowing full stadiums. You're just, oh my goodness, this is a super spreader event. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, that, that's what we're thinking too, by the way. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I mean, is it? Some no, I think the... the... Uh, that's my reaction. It's like, okay, okay, I think we've gone nuts. But So the, the way we look at it is, for those events, at least, you know, my, my impression um, from looking at it from France is that you need a, like, health pass, meaning it's not necessarily you've been vaccinated, but everyone needs to show that they are, at least they have been tested in the last 24 hours to attend these big events. And um, in France, I think we're at 50% uh, of the population that has the first dose. And, uh, you know, I, I don't remember how much has the second dose, but maybe 20, 30, something like that. The U.S. is even more um, vaccinated. And, of course, herd immunity has reached at about 70% of fully vaccinated people. So we're not there yet, um, but we're making good progress. And I know that uh, the EU has pledged to send um, millions or dozens of millions of vaccines to countries that need it because people are aware that you need to vaccinate everyone. But of course, you know, it's not dozens of millions, it's hundreds of millions or billions uh, of vaccines that you need to vaccinate everyone and everyone needs to be vaccinated. Um, so I think certainly the, the not quite euphoria, but the uh, feeling of, okay, we're done, especially because the next wave should arrive in the fall. Um, and by then, we're hoping that the most of the population will be vaccinated with that idea that initially in France, at least, it was like 60% of the population was saying, oh, I, I'm, you know, reluctant to get vaccinated, which was crazy. And everyone was going, well, not everyone, but people um, were thinking, oh, my God, we're doomed. And now we're at like 20% of the population only who's saying, I'm not so sure about that vaccine. So, but it has been slowing down um, the vaccination rates because there are less people who are willing to, to go down to the center and get vaccinated. It might also be because of the holidays and everyone's outside and, you know, they don't care. But I'm guessing that mostly throughout Europe by the end of the year or, you know, by the, the fall or the end of the year, we might be close to reaching herd immunity. Um, so I think our attitude here is not as uh, suspicious as it would be for you, Bart. Is that in Ireland, is the situation very different? Uh, I, I don't know. It just... Like, it, it's more... I, I get the impression that there, there, there's a... Just like last summer, things are going well. So there's a rush to just race straight back to normal, get out ahead of the, you know, do more than we probably should, speed up the reopening. And for Ireland, that was catastrophic last year. We, What's we the vaccination up, rate in, in Ireland right now? Uh, we're, we're doing okay. I think we have about 60-ish percent with the first dose. Okay. But with the Delta variant, that's proving to be quite meaningless. It's the second dose that really matters. And we, we did, we copied the UK and we did that long gap between first and second doses of AstraZeneca. Mm -hmm. And so now everyone's going, okay, so we did our, our most vulnerable people first and we gave them AstraZeneca and told them for a three month wait. And now it turns out there's a variant that doesn't care that you have one dose. And so now we're scrambling to shorten the gap for those people. Um. So on, on the one hand, it, it is it is definitely the case that we're we're very efficiently getting through every vaccine that gets into this country. So there are no large stockpiles. There's no vaccine we're not using. There's nothing going to waste. So I sort of I want to be positive about a rollout because I think that's that's the way it should be, right? Every bit of supply I mean, have, the government can get, they can you get into an arm. Great, three hundred new cases per day. Like that's 
not a lot. I don't know. If, I, it, it feels it's not a me... lot, Patrick, but we're a small country. So mm. this time last summer, we were at like 10 or 20. Okay. So we're, si- right. we're still an order of magnitude up from like last summer when we reopened initially cautiously. And then in September, we lost a run of ourselves. Last summer, case numbers were in the single digits some of the days. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, the vaccine, I don't know how dire the, the Delta variant is, but the 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 vaccination okay, isn't so necessarily looks... going to prevent you entirely from getting it, but it also lessens the gravity, uh, you know, the seriousness of the illness if you do contract it. Maybe the Delta variant yes, just but messes you up. Okay, so we have we had a big news story yesterday where it looks like an outdoor gathering was a mass spreading event of Delta. Right. Oh, I'm sure it's going to spread. Um, no, but an outdoor right, gathering okay. was a mass spreading event. That's, that is not how things have... Like, early COVID outside was... Outside didn't happen for that virus, right? Mm-hmm. It just it, did, it didn't spread outside. There, right, there was yeah, no, uh, a very good research out of Ireland that literally had the headline of the journal paper: "Covid does not spread outside." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and it was it was it made news on BBC World News. Like it, it was a good scientific finding, and it was true. And now we have a documented case of an outside super spreader event. We'll adapt. It's fine. <laughs> It's okay. I'm okay. Maybe I'm being a little bit optimistic, but I think you're, you're, I mean, obviously if the Delta variant means that outside is just as dangerous as inside. Yeah. we should. Okay, no, 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 don't get carried away. It's not just as dangerous, right? but it's not the get out of jail free card. We've been treating it as yeah. so. Okay. Um, what has me worried is that we, we, we had decided that we we're going to have an outdoor summer. That was the government's policy. They literally branded it as an outdoor summer. And then they're saying, and we're going to open indoor dining earlier than planned on the 5th of June. And now the Delta variant is spreading and they're going, no, no, we're going ahead with indoor dining. And I'm thinking, you're doing that thing where you stick your head in the sand and you doggedly stick to a plan you made when the facts were different. You're doing it again. And the last two times you did that, it exploded in our faces. Okay. I yeah, all right. Um, I you know, it is difficult to balance how to. Uh, it's not just about the economy; it's also people's well-being and right. mental health. And and I think a lot of people are very quick to say we should not open anything; we should stay indoors forever and you know until everyone is vaccinated and you 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 know what i mean just to be clear i'm not saying that right? okay. I, I am absolutely not saying that at all i am not one of those people what okay. i am saying is that we are doing that thing where the medical advice is telling us how much we should loosen which is quite a lot and the government are going further and every okay. time they have gone further it has exploded because strangely enough the medical experts know what they're talking about you know I'm not, you know, I'm sure longtime listeners of this show will be surprised uh, at me saying this, but experts are incredibly important. But they also see, they also often are very, very focused on their area of expertise and don't take into account the other realities of life. And so I'm not right. saying. Okay, so for context, Patrick, in Ireland, we have a a large committee with a very diverse area of expertise mm. that's advising the government. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not a silo. It's basically, it's a broad range of experts, including people who are concerned about things like mental health. And also, actually, strangely enough, one of the big feeders into the government's uh, policy and stuff is actually a regular survey of people's attitudes. Mm. Which is kind of an interesting input because the government are afraid that if they restrict too much, people will ignore the advice completely. Yeah. And it will be as if they had restricted too little. Yeah. And so they're actually are feeding that into Mm. the decision making, which is good. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I look at the numbers of Ireland and compared to France, it's like, you're but fine. but don't look at them. No, as, I I understand. I understand what you mean. You have to look for capita. You can't just yes, look at them course, as raw of numbers. Course. Of course. Um, but getting back to Southeast Asia, um, mm. what do you? How do you see the summer going? Like, do you think it's you're still in the situation that 
you and we were in last year. And for all of you, it's really like, oh, it's nice that you guys are are feeling better, but we're still in in you know poo poo here. And f all of you. <laughs> like, it, does this does this have um, this kind of feeling or? Uh, Malaysia, definitely. I mean, last week. So we, um, since about January, our cases have been going up. So right now, well, they hit a peak of about 9,000 and something, which is the highest mm. it's ever been. And the government freaked out and um, implemented a hard lockdown, which is what kind of the people have been calling for for the last couple of weeks anyhow. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, last ouch. week, I'm, the Prime I'm looking Minister- at the numbers and starting with the end of April, yeah. it's like, Phew, it's like Apple stock uh, going up and up and up. <laughs> and you can see it going exactly. down a little bit uh, from two weeks ago. Yeah. And so last Monday, the government, um, the prime minister released his his plan to get everybody out of this mess because uh, everybody's been calling for this. And um, basically, according to this kind of phased uh, recovery, so we're in stage one, Stage four, which would only just about then see interstate travel, <laughs> just interstate, right? Just being able to go to the state next door. Um, that might happen in October or November. Um, mm. So it's pretty bleak, actually, sitting in Malaysia right now, looking at this this timeline, and they've set different criteria. So right now we're in this very hard lockdown. Everybody's meant to be working from home, only essential services open. Um, and to get from this stage to stage two, where that might open slightly more, as in maybe a few more offices will be allowed to open. Um, we've got to have, have our cases down to 4,000. They've got to have been there for at least seven days. The population has got to reach 10% vaccination fully. And ICU usage has got to be at 75%. Mm. And you just look at some of the, you kind of, even if you just look at the vaccination rate. So right now, Malaysia is less than 5%, right? So the vaccination minister yesterday was saying, oh, maybe we'll reach 10% in mid-July. <laughs> mm. So we, we've got uh, another three weeks of this this really, really hard lockdown. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the economy, it's just tanking and being in tourism <laughs> and being told essentially mm. domestic tourism isn't even going to be able to happen until October, perhaps at the earliest. It's just gutting. It- I mean... Domestic tourism here hasn't been open since mid-January properly. Mm. Um, so if you are, you know, a, a local tourism business right now, you've had no income since mid-January and you might not get any income until October. Um, and there's not really, you know, e- Europe has been really great at doing all of these furlough schemes and uh, subsidies. Here in Malaysia, there there is some subsidy, but it is not to the extent of Europe. You know, mm. it's not to be able to keep these companies going. So all of these companies are folding. You know, hotels are closing down. People are losing their jobs. Um, yeah, it's a little bit depressing. I mean, you've got other countries like Singapore. At least they're getting through vaccination. I think by August, I think everybody would have had their first dose by then. And so they're kind of making these steps towards opening up. But the whole mood here is just super cautious. Mm. Everything is just really, really, really cautious. No one wants to open up their borders. Um, the exception is maybe Thailand. You might have seen the headlines that from the 1st of July, uh, Phuket is opening up to vaccinated travelers without any quarantine. Mm. But even just for that, um, there's a ton of paperwork that travelers have got to get through. Or they've of got course, to stay yeah. on Phuket for two weeks before they can go anywhere else. So even that in itself is super restrictive. So the governments are just being very cautious i mean and i think they all got spooked by india you know india is such a close neighbor um, for southeast asia that when all these cases were skyrocketing um i think just southeast asia just looked at that and went whoa <laughs> i don't want to end up like india oh my yeah. God. and um, you're you're not looking at the at the chinese or uh russian vaccines to because we're not using those i'm guessing that i mean they have a lot of people to vaccinate as well but yeah, well, that's the other issue, I suppose, with Southeast Asia is that we are really um, heavily reliant on, as a region on the Chinese vaccines as well. So Sinovac, Sinopharm are some of the main vaccines being used here. Um, Sputnik V, a little bit, the one from Russia, but yeah. mainly it is coming from, I mean, the main ones, okay, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, yes, they're here. But especially the poorer countries, let's say Cambodia or Laos, um, Indonesia, they're mainly relying on the Chinese vaccine. Um, and so, okay, the travelers 
in these countries are looking and saying, okay, or let's say I am allowed out to leave and go on holiday. Actually, I can't go visit Europe because they're not recognizing the Chinese vaccines. All oh, right. <laughs> so there's going to be that issue too. I mean, my view is eventually Europe is going to have to accept Chinese vaccines, right? Because there's no way they can just uh, stop Chinese people coming into Europe uh, forever because they make so much money for Europe. They're going to have to recognize it at some point. Once we have herd immunity, uh, maybe we're like, ah, okay. But uh, yeah, Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I really feel though that like we're hopefully, let's say, you know, it's so weird because we talk about these things and I'm like, yeah, we should also like get the most vulnerable people vaccinated everywhere and including in, in, in uh, poor countries. And, but if you ask me, you know, I'm like, oh, so Patrick, you don't want your vaccine? I'm like, well, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it's, it's tough. And, and maybe I could go without mine because I'm so isolated that it doesn't, you know, for me specifically, it doesn't matter all that much. But I can understand that people who live in a city are like, you know, I, I, I really want to help. But it's weird how I've been reading uh, The Expanse, and this will connect back to it. Um, you know, The Expanse, science fiction novel, really well written, uh, great TV show adaptation. And there's a character in that um, called... Uh, uh, Anyway, it's Amos. And at some point, he's in a situation where there's a catastrophe. And he says, when you're in a bad place, in a bad situation, your tribe gets smaller. And it really feels like this bad situation has made our tribes get back to, uh, you know, this among many other situations, um, get back to the national level. Like it's best case, it's regional level at the very least, but maybe national as well it's like we'll get our stuff first and then you can have yours and it's gonna be fine but like you know like we'll we'll order a billion vaccines for us first all right cool cool yes and it's weird because i can't you know i don't know how to get out of that aspect of it um if there was some kind of international coordination system that would say we need to vaccinate the most vulnerable people first everywhere and then we get the people who travel and then, you know, it would be great. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, totally. I, I think even within Southeast Asia. So we have our version of the EU, ASEAN, and that's been pretty much useless. Um, you would think that, I mean, they don't have as much powers and they are not as cohesive as the EU anyway, the way it's governed. Um, but you would think just amongst these countries, right, there's only there's only 10 of them. There's not a lot of countries to coordinate. Even between those, they haven't managed to recognize each other's vaccination certificates or figure out how to, you know, perhaps if they had bunched together at the beginning and said, let's all procure the vaccines together as a block, mm. um, that could have made a difference. But no, like you say, it's like every country for themselves. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I still really think that, let's say it's going to last for, let's go with the idea that the variants aren't going to mess everything up. It's going to slow things down and it's going to make everything a little bit more difficult. But by the end of 2022, I think, I hope, and I think everyone will be in a safer place. I think for the the West, uh, as I was saying before the uh, beginning of this year, by the end, you know, by the summer, we're seeing the impact of vaccination. And by the end of summer, it's going to be, you know, and definitely the end of the year, it's going to be a lot of closer to normal than it has been. But for the rest of the world, give it another year. I, I, I still have a positive view of this because this is one of the toughest global catastrophe that we've been faced with ever and hopefully within three years of its beginning it's going to be handled so we'll see what happens but that that'll be about on schedule right for if you look at spanish flu that's that was three years of mm-hmm. trouble sure but with less we'll have had oh a yeah bit less you know death and stuff but and and well anyway all right uh COVID is still an ongoing story, uh, and uh, we'll talk about it for a long time. The other ongoing story, of course, is uh, <laughs> is Brexit. Um, Bart, 
how are things going in Ireland related to uh you know, I I'll be honest I don't know Hannah if you if you'll agree of course as people have heard uh, given your accent you're from the UK originally yeah. um I don't know if you'll agree with me but I think Brexit has been this can be understood both ways but it has been going roughly as well as can be expected meaning not too bad is what I mean in the UK um I don't know if you would agree with that assessment. Maybe you're looking at it a little bit closer, but looking at it from here, and we've had other issues to worry about, um, it seems like, yeah, there are issues with selling stuff and buying stuff, but, eh, eh. Or, or do you think it's the disaster anti-Brexit yeah, people I mean, have been calling you? Yeah, I mean, I am anti-Brexit, so overall, I still think it's an absolute disaster. I mean... It's funny because I have been on the outside and, of course, I haven't been back to the UK since Brexit either. Um, but uh, I just think the government got a bit lucky with COVID. So, mm. um, I mean, luck, luck, it depends how you look at it, but at least they can blame anything uh, from the economy on COVID rather than mm. on Brexit. Um, so, in a way, that's given them a little bit more um, leeway. But yeah, it's just from a distance, it's just a confusing mess still, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. From a, a little bit of a closer distance, Bart, how, how does it look? What could you say about the UK? But more importantly, you know, just in 10 seconds, and then more importantly, uh, it seems to be having an impact on Ireland. Well, I'm okay. So the 10 second version is ticking time bomb. Um, okay. That That is, that is, because. Brexit hasn't happened yet. I, I know that sounds astonishing Wait, to say. <laughs> I know, I know. Bear with me, I will explain. So, w finally, after the transition period in January, in theory, we were all done, right? But mm -hmm. there was another transition period where Northern Ireland had some grace to implement its requirements under ah, the Northern Ireland right. Protocol. Yeah. And the British government have now twice unilaterally extended that grace period and the eu are getting more than a little bit impatient with the uk signing up to wait, a deal and then okay, wiping their bottoms on it what imagine I... boris johnson not following through on his commitments <laughs> like they okay just to make sure i understand the uk government which had an agreement with the eu to Mm -hmm. deal with that situation within a year they're like oh we'll do it like we have an extra three months or six months or whatever it is okay so at so the within a year bit was was ended in january right so that was when everything was supposed to come into force but the actual physical checking there was a three-month period where people were you know they were supposed to do the paperwork but there weren't going to be any physical checks and you know we we're just sort of give it a chance to bed in we don't want to cause all the shop shelves to be empty we'll give it three months it'll you know give us some time to get settled in and as those at the end of March approached, the British government just unilaterally extended it. And then they did it again. And Brussels were like, Did they say, no, no, oh, no. Brexit is making everything difficult? Or? Well, that is, there is, there is certainly that, because shock and or horror, you know, when you don't have a trade treaty, it's more difficult to trade. Who would have known? <laughs> But the, the real issue is yet again Northern Ireland, right? It, it comes down to the fact that we have a land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland is now not in the EU, and Ireland, the Republic of Ireland is now in the EU. In order for this island to remain at peace, it is vital that border remain open. I, I, without If that border closes again, it will be back to the 80s and the 90s. It will be back to what was euphemistically called the Troubles. We're already seeing a disturbing amount of paramilitary organizations raising their heads again. Um, and it's all being triggered by, the, by Brexit, frankly. So in order for that to flow, the only way to square that circle was to have checks between the UK mainland and Northern Ireland. So that Northern Ireland is in effectively a common trade area with the EU, but the rest of the United Kingdom isn't. So that means there is now an internal border within the United Kingdom, purely from a customs point of view, right? So people, people are not affected by it because Ireland and the UK have a, a free travel area. But things, so stuff has a border now in the Irish Sea. And that is an anathema to the unionist community. 
the concept that they are separated from the UK in any notional way, be it through paperwork for customs or anything else. They are now different to the rest of the United Kingdom, and that is intolerable to them. Mm. And so the implementation of those checks that have been negotiated with the EU, because the EU needs to protect the single trade area, the the fact that they're not implementing the the very, 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 very difficult, right? Backstops, everything we've talked about on this show over all of these years has all revolved around what to do about trade with Northern Ireland. They finally yeah. had a deal, and now the UK are not living up to their half of the deal. So the EU are going to lose patience. Meaning, sorry, just, just to be clear, meaning they're not checking things that come in through Northern Ireland into the UK. Is that how they're not living up to their end of the deal? The other way around. So things coming into Northern Ireland from the UK are supposed to be checked as they arrive. So the port in Belfast, etc. And that's okay. not happening. Oh, so that's what the, the EU is concerned about. Not things that got, get into the UK, but things that get out of the UK is what well, it's things from the UK into the north of Ireland because the north right, of right. Ireland is in a common trade area with the EU. So anything coming into Northern Ireland is coming into the EU, into right. the That's, common market, because yes, from there yes. it can go anywhere else in Europe. Yes, absolutely. And the UK is not doing it, even though they said yeah. they would. Correct. That, that, okay. that, that is the fundamental issue here. And then to mix all, to mix everything up and to make it all that bit more of a mess, you, you have the fact that Northern Ireland is itself a bit of a difficult place to govern <laughs> to put it very mildly. I can I can sense the uh the, the restraint you're putting into this uh this phrasing. I mean so we have the good friday agreement gave, brought peace to northern ireland and the big thing that brought was the end of that bloody border which was at the root of so much trouble and it brought a process whereby you have guaranteed um coalition government which must include both communities. So the government in Northern Ireland must include unionists and Republicans. It cannot be single side government again, because that is what caused the terrorism, etc. to happen, where the plurality of the country was unionist. They had all government power and they used it to oppress the Republican minority. And so to avoid that happening, the negotiated settlement that brought an end to the IRA's campaign was a very unique form of government where you democratically elect members of an assembly and then from that assembly you build a government in what is arguably a not democratic process because the biggest party gets to nominate a deputy first minister and then the other side get to nominate the matching half of that post and effectively the prime minister, what they call the first minister, is two human beings occupying one post. And That's if weird. either resigns, both have resigned. Okay. And they must be from the two halves of the community, right? It, okay. it's, it's, it's a complicated process. So because of the fact that the government were going to implement the checks they had legally signed up to implement, effectively, the largest unionist party exploded. Imploded, mm -hmm. exploded, not sure what we want to put it. That party tore itself in half because you have diehard idealists who don't really care about things like financial realities or what's in the best interest in terms of the North moving forward. They have this notion of there is a border, there must be no border, we are against this. It's it's emotion, right? It's, it's mm. not logic, it's not reason, it's just die-hard, brain-off emotion. And then you have the practical half of the party who are like, no, 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 we actually need to live here in Northern Ireland. We need a functioning economy. We we need to make compromises so that this place doesn't explode in a giant big mess. That, to, and, to, to be to be 100% clear, I mean, it goes back to the talking monkey issue that we were talking about, you know, for many episodes of our Brexit saga. Mm. The, the, the half that is idealistic is essentially wants something that is impossible given right. the terms of the deal that the UK has struck with the EU, correct? And just given the reality, it doesn't I mean the deal they have is the only deal possible when you when you account for reality. Mm. And <laughs> once you But account you know, for accounting reality, for reality is so annoying. Like it's so cumbersome. Well, it really is. It gets in the way, doesn't it? Yeah. So the the, the Unionist Party basically fired their leader which then triggered 
their leader to resign as deputy first minister, which then triggered the other half of the deputy first minister to have be considered to have resigned as well, mm. which then triggered a seven-day period where they had to nominate a new first minister. So the unionists managed to elect themselves a new leader in an extremely, extremely close election, like stupendously close. It was very fractious. You had people walking out of the meeting. It it was not a good way to pick a new leader. It, right. Mm. So poor Edwin Poots got handed the impossible task. He reminds me an awful lot of Theresa May. Basically handed a completely poisoned chalice Dear Teresa, fix this impossible problem. Dear Edwin, fix this impossible problem. So rather than collapsing the Northern Ireland government, he nominated a first minister. The Republicans nominated the second half of that post. And then his party had a motion of no confidence in him for agreeing to have a government in Northern Ireland without the EU agreeing to scrap the Northern Ireland protocol. What? Ba- yep, that's basically it. You didn't manage to get the EU and the British government and the Irish government to scrap everything and just ha- give us what we want. Therefore, you're fired. And so the guy who very narrowly lost just got elected last night. And I say elected. He was the only candidate. So he basically got to have his turn. But he doesn't have any easier time of it than Edwin Poots did. He doesn't have any easier time of it than, than what it's just. Okay. So it so, looks it looks like there okay, so Jeffrey Donaldson has said he is not going to nominate a first minister. So that means the seven day clock is ticking until the Northern Irish government explodes. Basically then it's rule from Westminster again and in theory run an election. Okay. So it seems like the the interesting thing is that you can look at it and say, Okay, this is just Ireland and Northern Ireland. And the problem is, if this doesn't get settled, it affects, obviously, the UK and the UK-EU deal. And so the entirety of that situation, which has been poisoning uh, the entire region for, what is it, three years now? Four years? Um, so, uh, or but, you could say since the 70s, when, when the trouble started. I mean, sure. I, I, well, know, there, there it's, was a it's pe- period of calm uh, until Brexit. But so, how do you see no, things? No, going? you're right. You're, you're right. Sorry, Patrick. You're dead right. After many, many years of very, very difficult negotiation, we had arrived to a, a place of relative stability, and then Brexit came and upset the apple cart. Yeah. So the, I the mean, other thing I that's important like this is here, the qu- there is actually an yeah, even bigger ahead. picture, because hmm? the U.S. have always have a long history of being on on the Republic of Ireland side of things. And the U.S. have made it very clear that they do not want to do a trade deal with a country that doesn't honor its trade deals. So as far as the U.S. is concerned, not actually doing what you promised is a problem when it comes to negotiating a trade deal, because we expect you to do what you promise and you've just proven you won't. So the U.S. is not discussing a trade deal with the U.K.? They are saying that the trade deal with the U.K. is contingent on fixing the Northern Ireland problem. Right. <laughs> I guess I understand what you've been, what you just said, Hannah, a little bit better. COVID is kind of convenient uh, in this situation. It's like, what you gotta do? It's it's it's, it's tough. We have problems to deal with. Um, it's you know, I don't, I don't the the. It's rare that I don't see a path forward out of a situation. Sometimes you have a path forward that is unlikely, that people are unwilling to take, that is, you know, these kinds of things. Here, we're still back to the to the talking monkey. Like people say, I promise you I will give you a talking monkey, and then good luck find, finding an actual real-life yeah. talking monkey. And we're still getting back to that. Um, I mean, the, the solution that was... D- dealt that was uh, uh, agreed upon with the EU would work if the you know if Northern Ireland would accept it but they don't right that's the key I mean okay so there are so what should be happening now in a in a reasonable world is that there are some practical friction points very practical mundane things and the negotiations should really be all about how do we make the how do we make the protocol actually work, right? So we're experimenting, we're trying. There's a friction point here. This process could be streamlined. Okay, let's streamline this process. 
But instead, we're talking about unionists telling Irish ministers they're not welcome in Northern Ireland with the very obvious hint of we'll blow up or shoot you. There is, uh, like, I mean, that actually this happened last weekend. This isn't the, the, a, a, something you're saying for effect. It's actually what is being implied. No, yes, the council, basically, believe it or not, it's called, they call it the unionist council, but it's actually the leaders of all of the unionist terrorist organizations got together and released a joint statement to the press saying that Irish ministers are no longer welcome in Northern Ireland. So when a bunch of terrorist organizations tell you you're not welcome, it's not just a vague threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm, you know, I'm asking you to be clearer on this because some, maybe even some people listening to this don't remember it and think, mm-hmm. you know, terrorism is just, uh, uh, you know, Middle Eastern brown men uh, uh, yelling stuff in, in Arabic. Terrorism is obviously not just that. Terrorism has long history everywhere and there was a lot of terrorism in ireland until i guess when when is the good friday the yeah the the 90s would be the good friday agreement yeah like it was people blowing people up and actually kicking killing people so every morning patrick you would turn on the news and the question would not be who was killed last night in northern ireland but how many and how bad yeah every day's news started that way yeah. And there is, there is another, there's a smokescreen been thrown up here as well, which I know people in Ireland are listening, but Bart, you haven't mentioned the Irish Language Act because officially the whole unionist explosion and refusing, officially they're re- refusing to nominate a minister not over Brexit, but officially it's over the fact that there was a promise made many times now as part of many agreements that there will be a law in Northern Ireland establishing support for the Irish language. In fact, they've negotiated to the point where it would be all minority languages, so it would include Scots Gaelic as well, which is a unionist, it's a language in the unionist community. And the unionist party that has exploded has actually twice promised to do it. And the official trigger for firing their 21-day-long appointed leader was that the Irish government and the British government came to an agreement that if the Northern Irish government failed to implement what has already been promised twice that Westminster would do it for them. And therefore, the Republicans were prepared to go back into government because even if the Unionists continued to not deliver on the promise they twice negotiated, Boris would legislate for it in London. (laughs) And that was a bridge too far because not only were the Unionists, the extremists in the Unionist Party, not prepared to do what they had already agreed to twice, they didn't want Boris to do it either. All right. Um, (sighs) You know, I was in a good mood. Uh, I'm sorry. This morning. Maybe you should have done COVID last to cheer us all Okay, I'll I'll talk about um France very quickly and then we'll we'll bring this to a close. Um there was an election, uh depart- departmental election, which is one level of, of governance. We have like three or four um in, in France, and no one cares about it, and uh no one went to vote. For for context, usually in France for the big elections, the presidential elections, we have like eighty percent participation rate. Um for that one it was it was like thirty-five, between thirty-five and and forty. Um and but it's like it, no, I couldn't even tell you what the department level of administration does. Like I, maybe I could, but it would be guessing. Like it's a very minor election, but still, thirty-five percent is is small. Um, it's in the context of the summer and everyone being, uh, uh, you know, sick of COVID and going out, and we just uh, have le- just lowered the restrictions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But still, um, so everyone is freaking out. And but the the interesting thing out of those elections is that the big winner uh, is the Republican Party, um, which is actually called Republican now. The Republicans uh, here in France or over there in France. I haven't been there in like a year and a half. Um, and the big loser was the far right party. So the Republican Party is the right wing party. The conservatives who have been going more to the right in the past five to ten years. Um, but there's still, you know, the acceptable company 
party. And the far-right party, um, the Rassemblement National, Marine Le Pen, I'm sure many people have heard about her, um, was the big loser, which is a little bit puzzling because in the recent uh, months, we've had a lot of polls that were asking the question, if, uh, at, you know, uh, 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 for the next presidential election, which is next year, if it comes down to uh, far right versus the center right party, which is currently in power, um, like it was for the previous election, uh, how would you vote? And the result was very, very close, like even closer than it was last election. Um, and it was very, very close. So a lot of people were saying, oh, my God, the, the far right party is gaining in power and it's going to they're going to be a major force um for the next election in the next year until the the election of 2022 and this election seemed to indicate that it wouldn't be the case and in a twist of i don't know irony um the leader of the far right far right party which has always benefited from uh low uh, uh participation in elections has been saying, uh, because, you know, of course, their base is very energized and goes out to vote, where maybe the bases of the more traditional parties are less energized and don't vote as well. But so for this election, she was saying, oh, my God, participation is at, at an all-time low. Go out and vote, people, please. And it was like, what that, is that's this? That's very backwards. Yeah, it, it's very surprising. Again, I think a lot of people are... are making a lot of getting a lot of conclusions out of this election which i feel is not representative for a number of reasons but it's still i'm sure it also can't be discounted um so that's an interesting uh you know thing that happened in france we'll see what happens for the next election next year um but yeah so that was what was happening in france in finland nothing much uh vaccination is going smoothly um we're it's really funny because well it's not funny at all actually but um i'm sure you've noticed that russia is sinking deeper and deeper into uh totalitarianism um you know there there are more and more laws and and moves and decisions being made by uh vladimir putin and and the government that make it you know a few years ago it wasn't the case but now it definitely is and finland as you all know if you listen to this show on a regular basis is of course has a very long border with russia and has always been very very keenly aware of the threat that russia is um for for finland it, there's been wars and invasions and it's like this is something you have to take seriously and so a couple of years ago the government started negotiating uh, the purchase of fighter jets. And it's now coming to a, a final decision. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm getting this number right. But Finland, which is a country of 5 million people, is ordering something like 60 fighter jets. I think the number is right. Even if it was 20, it would be ridiculous. But I think it's 60. And no one is like discussing it, meaning no one is saying we shouldn't do it. They are lowering it. We still have a, a tremendous healthcare system and, you know, uh, uh, social safety nets. But all of this is being a little bit defunded to fund the purchase of uh, fighter jets. And no, when I say no one, I mean no party, including the, you know, very nationalistic and uh, maybe even that you could think are, uh, Russian-friendly parties, no one is saying anything about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, we need those. Let's, like, we have a very, we, Finland has a very friendly relationship with Russia, but it's like the epitome of talk softly, but carry a big stick. It's like it's more than talk softly. It's, we're friends. No problem. Like, we'll talk, we'll trade, well, it's great, everything is fine. But also, I have sixty fighting, you know, fighter jets yeah. in the backyard. So, like, the policy is: if something happens, we have to make it so ex we like Finland can't win, but they have to make it so onerous for the, you know, not the Red Army, but the uh, remains of the Red Army or the Russian Army to enter Finland that they will think twice, and that's enough 
and that's the policy. And so 60 <laughs> fiber jets, it's insane. I think it's 60. I hope I'm not mistaken. But yeah, that's what's happening. Uh, I presume Finland are in NATO. Uh, Finland is not in NATO, and that's oh. a huge... We're in the uh, the uh, um, EU, of course, and that yeah. that is the first thing that uh, Finland did when Russia collapsed. They're like, all right, cool, now we can, we'll be in the EU, and before that, you know, the Russian bear shakes off their, uh, uh, you know, their, their drunken party time... Will be in the EU. That will, be, and it's a big topic of discussion because there are a lot of people who are saying we should get in NATO and be protected, like be safe. And a lot of people who are, I think, more realistic are like, you do not want to put NATO on the border of Russia. This is like a provocation. It will force Russia to do something. Like this is insane. You shouldn't do it. The status quo it now is, is not much the better. time. I guess would be the argument. You know, I when mean, relations were good, might have been the time you could get away with it. Not even no, like that would not. Uh, Russia relations are great. It's just that Russia is Russia. It's like it's our zone of influence. And if you put NATO in, like, it's like I don't know. It's like Cuba. You know, two meters away from the U.S. That's not conducive to. Uh, when you're in the cold the middle of the cold war you're that's not conducive to uh healthy relationships you do you, you just irritate people and we know how russia is with uh the influence of the eu and like already the eu could be can be considered ca- kind of iffy but um yeah the, so no, the no eu now has a, has its its own army right so doesn't that mean that if if russia were to invade the eu would be sucked into a common defense policy Absolutely. And so many so EU why members do we need to, members? Why do we need to add NATO onto this? Right? Well, I, We're I'm already sort of protected. Thinking, wouldn't NATO just come in by default? Yeah, kind of, yes. But so you don't need to have Finland be a, a, like you don't need the provocation. You don't need the added insult yeah. and injury. Right? It's it's pointless. It's useless. And and we need yeah. and, and it's not like Finland can afford to not have a strong army anyway. So there's really no reason to be in NATO except to appease some of the people who think it would be like safer. It, it really wouldn't. I, I don't think it would be. Anyway, I, I, as long as you're in the EU, I don't see it making a difference. But I, I, just, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. How much your opinion? I don't think it would. I don't think it would. Yeah. Well, so uh, what's the conclusion of this episode? Every, everything's great. Everything's fine. Um, Things will be fine. It, it, for context, Patrick, if, if Northern Ireland hadn't blown up and if there wasn't a, pa- a pandemic, the biggest story <laughs> in Ireland would have been that our entire healthcare system was taken down by a cyber attack. And weeks later, we're still at 75% of our servers back only. So, yay. Uh, you know what? Next time, I'll invite people who have good news. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I look forward to listening to that show. Actually, it'd be great if I was on it, but... <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for being on. Uh, Before we leave, of course, uh, I'll ask both of you to let us know where we can uh, follow you on the internet. Hannah, still on Twitter? Uh, Not really. Find me on LinkedIn, Mm. Hannah F. Pearson, or you can um, check out my podcast, The Southeast Asia Travel Show. Um, We're on all of the major platforms, so you can search it there and find us there. Southeast Asia Travel Show. I wonder what you're discussing these days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah right <laughs> no idea <laughs> Bart where can we find you on the internet since no one can spell my name the easiest thing to do is to go to bartb.ie where you'll find links to stuff like my twitter and my podcast let's talk apple let's photography and the work I do with Alison Sheridan on her podcast the Nacilla cast and uh, our special series we're doing called programming by stealth wonderful programming by stealth that sounds interesting well, Alison threatened for years that when she retired, she would let me teach her to program. And she did. Oh. And I took her up on it. I said, right, you said I could teach you to program. I'm going to teach you to program. And so we snuck on We snuck up on it by starting with HTML, which isn't really programming. <laughs> oh, so that might get you in trouble with some people saying this. but it's I not, No, I, I will defend that one vigorously. <laughs> I kind of agree. Uh, it's like, how's it called? It's Mark language. Markup. That's language. the ML. It's markup. Right? Yeah. HTML. Markup yeah. language. Yeah. 
Uh, all right. Well, thanks to both of you. For me, it's not Patrick on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm also notpatrick.com. You'll find links to everything I do, including the French language shows Le Rendez-vous Tech and Le Rendez-vous Jeu, where I talk about tech and gaming every week. And if you enjoy this show, you can support it at patreon.com slash Club. Very much appreciate all the people who already do. Thank you for your patience with my uh, absence. Having children is not easy, uh, but we will hopefully be back on a semi-regular uh, schedule going forward. That's the hope, at least. The summer vacations are coming up next month, so we'll see what happens there. But after that, absolutely, we'll be back. So thank you very much. Thanks for your support to all the Patreons, uh, Patreon supporters, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.